for the most entertaining talk anywhere. Stay tuned to LA Talk Radio, your real talk station, with 24 hours of commercial free programming. Like a homeless man trying to change his life. We do it so fresh, and we do what the fuck we want to do. The Green Room is brought to you today by Amazon. Log on to SeanTGreen.com and click the Amazon link to support the Green Room today. And now, live from Sherman Oaks, California, the host of the Green Room, Sean Green. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Green Room. We're doing it live here on LATalkRadio.com. Feel free to give us a call at any point on the legal Zoom self-help hotline, and that number is 323-203-0815. Besides being brought to you by Amazon, we're also brought to you by LegalZoom.com, the leader in self-help legal documents. You can log on to LegalZoom.com, and you can create legally binding documents in minutes. They're very professional. Instead of going to a high-priced attorney, you just log on to LegalZoom.com. Besides all the savings that you're going to get from going to a traditional lawyer, LegalZoom.com customers average an 85% savings over traditional attorneys. Besides those amazing savings, you're also going to get the Green Room discount by entering green in the checkout box. Speaking of stuff to check out, my left-hand man, Logan Lysico. <laughs> Logan, thanks for being on the program. Good morrow. Logan, you do it every time, man. You're consistent. I like that. Always a great start to the program. And, man, what a program we have for you. Later on in the show, um, famous comedian, author, radio show host, Greg Fitzsimmons will be Skyping into the program. But if that wasn't enough show for you, also in studio we have the legendary John Huck. John, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. <laughs> How you guys doing? Doing great. Good. So you, I see you're rocking a uh, what kind of hat is that? It's a it's a Reno Aces hat. It's a minor league baseball hat. Oh okay. Yeah, I, I'm wearing it though because it kind of looks like a Braves hat. Yeah, I, I saw and, that. I thought you I were... can't full out support the Braves, but I do like uh, Derek Lee and I like Bobby Cox. So I kind of want them to win the national. They're not gonna, but you know what I mean. Right. That's my. Uh... Yeah, the Phillies got that. They got it locked uh, up. It'd be probably Phillies against the Giants, huh? Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess we'll see how uh, the Braves and the uh, Giants shake out. But, of course, the Phillies are coming off their uh, 1-0. Holiday pitched a no-hitter. Only the second time that's ever been done in uh, postseason Major League history. Second time in like 100 years. And, uh, actually, I found this stat I think they talked about in the Dan Patrick show. It was the <laughs> first time that a pitcher has out-hit an entire team. He had one hit, and oh, he no-hit the team. <laughs> that's the first time that's ever that's happened awesome. in baseball history. That's awesome. That's so, impressive. Uh, yeah, it is. Speaking of holiday, we, we got into that real quick. A um, Right after this happened, a Phillies fan, of course, a uh, heavyset Phillies fan, decided to come out with this <laughs> groundbreaking parody. So uh, take a listen. Holiday. Oh, my God. <laughs> Picture a fat Phillies fan dancing Celebrate. to this and try to hold the throw up in. If we pitch for holiday. <laughs> wow. You will see it's great He's waited all his life Just to pitch Just to pitch tonight Being beat is absurd <laughs> The Reds are gonna fill elimination 
I just love, like he, you know, the, the brainstorming process was holiday, holiday. All right, get in the studio. The studio, of course, just being him with a digital camera. And there was no effort to figure out any sort of the, the chorus or any sort of the lyrics beforehand. He, he's really just trying to freestyle those lyrics. And I got to be honest, it's not working. Oh, so that's a guy. I thought they actually got Madonna to... <laughs> To do that, that sounded really they good. Have, they probably have the same cup size, this uh, Phillies fan <laughs> and Madonna. I think that's the only thing they have in common. Is he wearing a cone bra? Um, unfor- well, fortunately, no. <laughs> fortunately, no, Logan. Well, now, John, we were uh, talking about before the show, you were just coming from a commercial audition. I know you're in a lot of commercials. I think people, you're definitely one of those guys that people recognize your face. Do you get that a lot from uh, commercials? I usually just get people who think that they think I'm someone else, so they think that they know me from somewhere else. Yeah. So okay, they're just like, you. oh, you seem so what, familiar. What celebrity do you get the most? Chris Elliott every day. Okay. Yes. That. <laughs> I Chris Elliott. That. I get uh, Brian Posehn. I get uh, Tom Petty. Well, Tom there you Green. go. They're all. Uh, they're all success. I don't see Tom Green at all. Um, I guess well, maybe the beard. Off. When my beard was shorter and my hair was a little bit shorter, because we kind of have the same nose. Okay. And you dyed your hair black. And I dyed my hair black. And right? your eyes brown. <laughs> I okay, dyed so- my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> this burns. <laughs> it's just the eye dye. So you uh, you went to a commercial audition. What was the, oh. what was the recent role for? Well, it was it's was for a Burger King spot, and uh, it was for basically a stoned um, like guy who works at like a coffee place. Barista. Like a, yeah, there you go, barista. Thank you. So what was the uh, like? Walk us through the audition. What? Well, I down? walked in. I like to be I like to be chatty and uh, kind of like. Show a little bit of personality when right. I Right. Hey, there, hey, know? this hey. guy, he's, he's a fun guy to have on set. He exactly. might be a prankster. Exactly. Hey, there's going to be long days. We want this guy around. <laughs> you know, that's like my thought process. No, yeah, <laughs> I know. So as douchey as it sounds. But is, but... I'm like, dude, maybe they'll just think I'm a nice guy and want me around because I'm clearly not that good at this. <laughs> but I look odd enough, you know. And uh, I walked in, so I was trying to make small talk. Um, and this guy had a Reds hat on. He's like the first guy I made eye contact with. And it's like the client, like the, the the people, like the Burger King people are there, and then the director and stuff. And and I'm like, oh hey man, he's got a Reds hat on. I'm like, sorry about your Reds, dude. That's a bummer, you know. And then I go, oh fuck the Phillies anyway, dude. You you guys will come back. <laughs> and then as I make my way up the row of people with my eyes, I can see that like two of them are Phillies, wearing <laughs> Phillies hats. And I'm like, oh. Oh, oh no, not not you guys. I mean, no, that's good. Fuck the Reds. <laughs> yeah. And then now I, you're trying to play both sides. Yeah. And then I just <laughs> tell them I'm a Cubs fan, and everyone kind of feels sorry for me. So. Oh, there you go. You played the uh, pathetic <laughs> yeah, card. I played, I played the loser card. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. I'm not stealing the World Series from you. Which you think you're go- You think you're in all right. Because what are the odds that in a commercial audition there's multiple guys wearing baseball gear? Well, yeah. I mean, if you go into a commercial audition, generally it's either kind of flamboyant guys, metrosexual, British people, not not like <laughs> the blue collar, lunch pail guys that you would expect yeah. to be a baseball fan. You, when you walk in, you don't expect to see a guy with like a lipper of red man well, and no, a, a thermos but... of coffee. <laughs> I don't, but I will say that you know. Everyone should be a baseball fan, so it's it's not too surprising when I see like different fans from different teams right. sitting in the same room, really. But John, I like I like to uh, I like to generalize. You like to okay. embellish and generalize. Exactly. I don't it's... understand how comedy works. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't like to I don't like to deal with specifics. I understand every person is different. Okay, I don't have time for that nonsense. I will lump them all I'm together. I'm a racist and that's maniac how it's go. <laughs> that does whatever I want. Well, you're talking about uh, coffee. And this gives me a chance to crowbar this anecdote in. I like to um, 
well, uh, you know, during the day I have a job, and I during the show off. Yeah, sometimes I go on my lunch break. I go down to Starbucks. There's a Starbucks on uh, Sunset Boulevard in La Brea, if you're familiar at all with Hollywood. And one right next to that. Right. Yeah, they're all over the place, obviously. <laughs> and I I just set up shop there, and you know, trying to write some jokes. But really, this is a prime spot for staring at chicks because. I don't know what it is about this Hollywood location, but every, like, I take my lunch at 1 o'clock, and this must be when every hot chick in the Hollywood three-mile radius wakes up and decides to get coffee because you just sit there, and you just get hypnotized by these beautiful women. So I'm sitting there, <laughs> girls up there in line, you know, cute-looking look, cute chicks, so I'm just... You know, kind of zeroing in on. Out, yeah. yeah, just kind of yeah. just uh, oh, oh, I'm looking at the newspaper, but I'm just staring at her ass, and I'm <laughs> I'm just sitting there just being a creep. And then out of nowhere, this older, much less attractive woman comes out of nowhere and goes, excuse me, excuse me, miss, did you park in the handicapped spot? And she goes, uh, she goes, um, there was a handicapped person that wanted to park there, and now she drove away. We're calling the cops. And the hot chick's only excuse was, sorry, I'm, I'm from out of town. <laughs> well, I'm hot. I'm not used to this happening. Well, look at this. Look at this, guys. That's hilarious. Uh, we got Greg Fitzsimmons calling in on the line right now. <clears throat> nice. Is this uh, Greg Fitzsimmons? Yellow. Greg. Hello? Hello? I think this is going well. Yes. Uh, Greg, are you there? All right. He's well, got his phone on mute and he's just laughing at you. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm here. I I, uh, I tried to pick up, so if Greg's listening, uh, please try and call back again. But, yeah, that was the only thing that she could think That's of. That's awesome. Because in my town, it doesn't matter. You could just park on them. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and besides doing that, you know, like, let's say you were in a rush. Okay, I get it. There's not a lot of parking spots. You see two handicapped spots open. You think, what are the <clears> odds? <throat> they're going to fill up. Okay, I'll, I'll be a jerk. I'll park in it. But then someone comes up to you. And, and gets in your face about parking in a handicapped spot. You give this awful excuse, and then she waits for another five minutes to place her order. Like, <laughs> wouldn't be, wouldn't she's that be the cue? Ev- everyone's staring at her. Everyone hates her, and she's like, "I'm just gonna wait for my latte." Yeah, wouldn't that be the cue to uh, get out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Run, go to a different Starbucks. But uh, my, that's so why I never do stuff. Or- Nothing happened to her car, though? It didn't get towed? No, uh, cops no, no. I, I love that. We're calling the cops, and the cops are like, lady, we have crime to fight. Do you mind? <laughs> Seriously, yeah. yeah. So well, someone who's handicapped didn't get coffee today. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. Maybe I would be a dick and just stay in the line because that lady was Well, if that lady was being super cunty, I would, definitely, I would definitely stay in the line and then just laugh at her. But at the same time, I would never do that because I'm the guy that I know as soon as I park there. There's going to be like a yeah. busload of handicapped people like, we wanted coffee and we couldn't. It's like I, I would be the guy when I was like, you dick. Okay, let's see. Uh, I think this is Greg calling in again here. Uh, Greg. Yeah, is that better? Oh, yeah, that's perfect, man. I'd, I'd like to welcome Greg Fitzsimmons on the show. You know him from his Howard 100 program, his uh, popular Fitz Dog podcast. And now he's uh, also uh, recently written a book, um, Greg Fitzsimmons, Letters to... Or no, I'm sorry. It's uh, Dear Miss Fitzsimmons. Is that correct? Yeah, Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, um, which is my mother, and uh, probably the person who's least excited about this book coming out. <laughs> okay. Um, so you're talking. Um, I've heard you talk about the book, and basically it's you kind of going through your um, your your life and uh, kind of going over the themes of you dealing with authority. And uh, how does that relate to your mother specifically? 
Well, I guess being Irish, it's the the mother-father combo. One of them introduces the concept of shame, and then the other one takes a hammer and beats it into you for 18 years. Now, which... And so, so authority becomes anybody who would dare tell you what to do. So you've, you've got the rage built in, and then you've got the modeling of it. When you, when you see your father get into bar fights, and you see your mother... Um, you know, sneak you into movies when you're 14. And and so you basically learn just to do the opposite of whatever you're told to do your whole life. So do you remember a specific event early on when when you kind of – when it kind of hit you of, wow, I should lie or it's okay to not do the right thing? Well, the book tracks all of that through these letters. My parents would open the letters at the dinner table that were sent home from school. And you were never really sure if the letter was going to get you a beating or whether or not they would burst into laughter. And then it was the greatest night in the world. So it kind of depended on if the teacher wrote it in a funny way, like if they said the exact details of what you did. (laughs) And so I saved my mother saved all these letters because they got a kick out of them. And so when I found them in a box like five years ago, I said, you know, this is really wrong. <laughs> and so I wrote a one-man show about it that I did in New York. And I did the one-man show, I think, twice. And then I said I never want to do a one-man show again because I never want to invite anybody that I know to a show. Yeah, they seem and, pretty personal. Well, I don't mind the personal part of it because my stand-up is very open. But when I do stand-up, people, people come out and see me. <laughs> and I don't invite my friends and family to the right, show. Right, exactly. So I just I kind of shelved it, and then this this book agent approached me, and he said, "Hey, I think you could sell a book just because I've gone stern a lot, and I've got this podcast, and you know whatever other stupid things I do in my life." He <laughs> thought maybe I could get people to buy a book. So I told him this idea about the letters, and he said I can sell that. So I spent like a year turning the one man show into a book proposal, and then he went out with it, and we had. We had a bidding war between four publishers over it, and then, uh, and then, unfortunately, I had to write it. <laughs> now, now you talk about uh, in your comedy and stuff like that that you have you have trouble focusing, you have ADD. Take us through the process of sitting down and writing this book. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> um, you tuned it's out. It's brutal. It's it's it, it honestly it's. The worst experience of my life. No, absolutely not even a close second place. It was the most painful. Um, you know, every time I've quit in my life, which is almost everything I've ever done, <laughs> felt so sweet. You know, that people talk about the feeling of accomplishment. I would rival that any day with a good quit. Yeah. <laughs> of knowing like that, that you have to get something done and then just going. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. why I had a drinking problem. It's why I had a drug problem because that's just quitting on life. It's a temporary quit, and it's why I love sleep because it's quitting on life. Exactly. You can just uh, say, "Hey, no, I don't need to experience consciousness. I can just sleep for a while." Yeah, I remember when I quit football after a sophomore year in high school. Part of me was like, oh, you're not a quitter, Sean. You're not a quitter. Greens aren't quitters. But then part of me was like, oh, wait, I don't have to wake up and get my ass kicked by these 250-pound roided-out freaks. And that felt good. I'm not going to yeah, lie. I think, I think a lot of our um, pain in life comes from 
staying with things that we're not really <laughs> sure why we're still doing them. And you and, yeah. and I think sometimes you got to just stop down and say, am, am I trying to am I trying to get daddy's love still or or like I'm married and I'm 44. Like, am I am I doing things because I think chicks will dig it? Like, you've got to check in and go, I, I don't have to do that anymore. Right. You don't have to impress chicks anymore. Now I you- actually had this idea for a TV show that I, I made a deal with Fox and we, we tried to develop it all last year. And it was based on this exact premise. It was called the Dream Police. And we would go out and you would you would be turned in. Like if you were a dreamer, you would be turned in by maybe your spouse or maybe your mother or a good friend. And it's people that are still following a dream that they should have given up on a long time ago. And so we arrest them in a van, like a police van. And they're brought into a soundstage in front of an audience. And then they literally are... Um, like given a trial on whether or not this <laughs> oh dream God. is valid any longer. <laughs> Were you able like to film that. the pilot at all? No. The the problem with it is the entire entertainment industry <laughs> rests on the premise that you should follow your dream. And if we if we turn the lights on to that premise and we examine it, they can no longer do half the programs and movies they do. Right. Oh, yeah. It's not really the most inspiring tale. Like, yeah. It's not extreme home makeover when you're just crushing people's dreams. On the other hand, no, it might get people it's, to move out It's of one thing to have Simon Cowell take a little jab at you, but it's another thing to say, <laughs> you know, most of our dreams are lies, and in the in the existential uh, take on life, we're all just uh, somehow uh, kidding ourselves until we die. <laughs> that's, a l- that's a little dark for us, uh, television programming. Now you talk on Fox. Now you talk about um, the painful process of writing the book. Um, I, like yourself, are a big Howard Stern fan. Now you went out on a limb and you asked Howard Stern to write your foreword, and then it turned into this whole dragged-out process where it seemed like at first, you know, as a listener, it seemed like oh he was just kind of bitching and moaning like he normally would. Oh, I got to write this foreword, and then it turned into kind of a weird thing. Can you can you walk us through that whole uh, process? I can't. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, I still I still don't know what happened exactly, and and I guess that's you know in the theater of the Howard Stern show, there's there's one writer and he's not showing the script to anybody. Yeah. And so you never really know uh, what part of it is a bit, in, what part of it is Howard working out his neuroses. Uh, what part of it is me really having overstepped and and facing the music for it? And the truth is, it's probably some part of all those things. It was two months straight of him going on the air and talking about how I'd put him in a bad position and how he didn't really know me, and and it was uh it was a long two months because it wasn't <laughs> like he said uh um you know but but it's done. He right. kept saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, as a listener, it felt like every time he would come up and, he's, oh, I got to write this thing. It just seemed like him kind of getting into his own head, as he often does on the show, where he'd be like, oh, I don't want to go to therapy, but I know I have to do it. It's good for me. It seemed like that's how he was kind of looking at this. Like, oh, I got to do Greg a favor. I like Greg. Don't get me wrong. You know, like it seemed like he wanted to do this. But he, he just was kind of couldn't sit down and actually do it. So I can see on your end where you're where you're still thinking like, oh, OK, he's going to do it. I shouldn't just say stop doing it. <laughs> Were you getting a lot of pressure from your publisher to have Howard turn in this forward? Um, I wouldn't say they gave me pressure. I just think 
you know, with publishing, there's a there's a certain point of no return when when they've, you know, when he said he'll do it, and so then they go out to Barnes and Noble and Borders and whoever else, and they start sending out press releases which go out, you know, a month or two in advance. And one of the things you say on a press release is, you know, who who did the blurbs and who's doing the forward. And so since it had gone out, sort of like, you know, we, we'd thrown our backpack over the wall. And right. so it, it, it put me in a really tough position because it, it was a certain point where I couldn't really even say, you know, you're off the hook because uh, – I first of all, I didn't put them on the hook, and I wasn't really sure what the hook was anymore. <laughs> right. right. And so I basically just hung in and uh, let him play it out himself. And uh, when my publisher would ask, I'd I'd say, <laughs> "Look, turn your fucking radio on." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Can I curse on this show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Oh, good. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't so. know. I I can't tell you any more than any other listener can tell you right now. And so. Then it spun into this thing where people were uh, suddenly mad at me for not letting Howard off the hook. And I really couldn't believe they were serious at first. Like, I couldn't believe that adults <laughs> who were listening to How Howard dare Stern, you ask him to do you a small personal favor? How dare you? <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the hard thing for, it, for me is I did – I poured over that note to him for weeks, right. you know, really agonized about – how to word it, it was a very vulnerable thing to ask somebody who you think more of, you know, in, in professionally, I, I, there's nobody I think more of than him. And then personally, I, I have a what I thought was a, a, a strong <laughs> connection. And then to have that person uh, say no would have been really, really digestible. And I put it in the note to him. There's no pressure. There's no expectations. And so when he agreed, I felt like uh, – even though it was immediately resented, I felt mixed and I felt like, uh, wow, I wish I'd never written the note because he said he'd do it, but I didn't want it under the premise that he doesn't want to do it. You know, I was really asking him for personal reasons. And so uh, it, it was a, you know, people tell me, hey, that was great promotion. That was great publicity. <laughs> I'll tell you right. what, man, You're I would give genius. it all back. <clears throat> Right. Yeah, I, I I see where you're coming from. That you were kind of like you said, vulnerable. You obviously the relationship with Howard is important to you personally and your career because he's someone you look up to. And then to kind of go out on a limb and say, hey, could you do me this favor? This book means a lot to me. You didn't ask him on the air. You didn't put him on the spot. You wrote him a note. They left it for him on his desk, and then it kind of created this domino that kind of uh, got got out of your hand there. Now you're talking about. Uh, you said your mom. You're not looking forward to your mom reading it. Have you shown your mom any of the manuscript so far? No, uh, <laughs> which I should because it comes out in four weeks. But uh, I, sh I showed her most of the pictures and documents, and then I, I made a list when it, when it came down to the final manuscript. I made a list of things that she was going to hate, and I <laughs> sat down with her around Easter, and I walked her through each one. And to her credit, there was only one or two things that she felt really strongly uh, that she wouldn't be comfortable with in the book. So I put those in the first chapter. <laughs> Get them yeah, out so of the it, it was, But it's look, I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm I'm really nervous about showing it to her. It's going to be really hard for her. And it's it's hard when your son is as honest as I am to the public because I'm used to it. I signed up for it. But right. it, she didn't ask to be put in this uh, in this arena. Now, yeah, that, 
what, what I'm kind of getting at here is uh, you talk about being Irish Catholic and having shame and kind of guilt put in. Did you have any sense of guilt kind of airing your family's dirty laundry, if it was, or just talking about family personal stuff? Like you said, you signed up for it, but now you're talking about your dad who. Well, is yeah, no but longer here's around. the thing about dirty laundry I didn't make it dirty. Right. No, I'm, I'm not saying you should feel guilty, but I'm no, saying. No, I'm, I'm just trying, I'm trying to explain. Oh, okay. So. In other words, dirty laundry to me, at a certain age, you have to say to yourself, I can either spend my life uh, perpetuating secrets and refusing to break cycles, or I can put it all out there, maybe to a fault, and I chose the latter. So, yeah, there's, there's times where I feel like, yeah, my mother uh, would not have put this out on her own, <laughs> but she also encouraged me to be a writer. She she gets a lot of joy out of the fact that I'm minimally famous. And so, you know, there's a there's a price with that, and it's that, you know, you can't choose what I'm putting out there. Now, you talk about um, cycles and breaking cycles, and I know, you know, from my own personal experiences, being Irish Catholic, uh, you know, there's problems with drinking, problems with depression. Uh, are you worried about your kids that maybe they're going to still kind of have these flaws? And what are you doing as a parent? Obviously, you're very cognizant of it. But is there anything you're doing particularly to try to break the cycles with your children? Well, you couldn't ask a heavier, deeper question than that. I mean, that is my that is my life. You know, if there's one thing that I hope to accomplish in my life, it's that I provide my kids with uh a chance to just be themselves and to be driven by, uh, you know, healthy. Um, like I can't even describe how you would live a normal life because I haven't. But like <laughs> in, in the absence of all the shame and the belittlement and the fear and all that, I, I which I'm I'm taking off the table. I I hope that they grow the way a normal kid would in a normal environment. Right. Now, now you talk about um, standing up to authority. How has authority or standing up to authority, do you think that kind of that um, rebellious attitude helped um, draw you to stand up comedy as a career? I don't know if it drew it to me as much as I had no options except that. It's like, you know, when people say, were you drawn to alcohol? And you say, well, I was never drawn to it. I just I, – I really was not that interested in the other program of being sober. <laughs> and so like I, I guess with stand-up, it was the place where you could go where you could scream and yell and yeah. be mean and, and show up late and wear what you want and drink on stage and have sex with the staff. And, and it was all Plus acceptable. Boy. So it seemed like a really good fit at the time. Now, it, um, so you're standing up to authority that you kind of get into uh, stand-up comedy from that. Now, you, you've had a lot of, uh, you know, success. You've been on uh, David Letterman. You've been on Conan O'Brien. Was there kind of a singular moment where you felt, okay, I'm officially in show business, or there's a moment where I made it, I, you know, I'm 29 years old, I'm on David Letterman, or however, was there a moment when you felt, I made it? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because it was. I was 29, and I was on Letterman for the first time. And without a doubt, there has not been a moment that came anywhere near that feeling. It was the thing that I guess I dreamt of as a kid. It was the thing that, as a comedian starting out in, uh, you know, 1989, and uh, there there was no – it was the era of Letterman. He was the king. You know, the, the whole being called over to the Carson couch – 
seemed corny at that point. Right. And Letterman was uh, someone I just connected to because he was completely anti-authoritarian. He railed against NBC at that time and um, spoke out against celebrities, and he would he would really uh, attack a guest if he felt they were being disrespectful <laughs> to him. And I related to all that stuff. And, and also he had comedians on that I looked up to the most. You know, he had on Bill Hicks and Kinnison and uh, uh, a lot of the people that I think The Tonight Show probably wouldn't wouldn't have touched with a 10-foot pole were going on there, as well as comics like Louis C.K. and David Tell. Like I, I felt like the peers that I respected the most were were – considered letterman comics and so when i got to do the show it was like i didn't feel worthy i put i, I trained for it like you trained for a marathon and when i got off stage uh, my dad had died about i don't know a few years before that and i got off stage and i was thinking a lot about my dad he was in entertainment and we both loved letterman and i walked off stage and i just burst into tears it was like the most emotion I'd been I think I'd been talking to him in my head before I went on, you know, like, look at this. Right. And then when I walked off, it just all came out. And Faith Hill was the next guest. And she was standing there and she saw me and she just gave me drew me into her big southern bosom and gave me a big hug. <laughs> oh. And I was like, how does life get any better than this moment? Exactly. So nice. you think subconsciously all these years that um, Letterman felt like being on Letterman felt like a validation in the sense that okay, Dad, look, I'm I'm good, I'm worth it, I succeeded in this career. You said your dad was in show business as well, uh, Bob Fitzsimmons, old school radio host. What was his uh, reaction when you told him that you wanted to pursue stand-up comedy? It was great. I mean, he was extremely supportive. It would be hard not to be if he he was a disc jockey, you know, or he would. Who comes out, you know, a, a broadcaster, and he knew what it entailed. He knew that I knew what it entailed because I grew up watching him, you know, go in and out of work, and the stress that it created, and the highs and the lows. And he knew I was a smart kid, and I wasn't going to walk into something that I didn't think I could handle. Whether or not I was successful didn't really matter. I think he was supportive of the fact that I was going for it. And I think he did believe that I had enough talent that I'd be able to. He did remind me, he really pushed me towards writing as well. He never, you know, tried to talk me out of stand-up, but he goes, in addition, you know, always be writing. You know, try to write. And it's the best advice I ever got because uh, now that I have a family, I'm able to do stand-up. But I really only do the gigs that I want to do because I, I take writing jobs also. And I'm able to make enough money as a writer that I don't have to, you know, depend on being on the road as much as I would have. Yeah, you you seem to have a very independent career in that you do the podcast, you do your radio show for Howard Stern, you wrote a book, you do your writing jobs when you want. You, the career seems very much on your terms. What do you now? Are you are you happy with where your career's at? Obviously, you're not a like a household name or something, but it seems like that's not necessarily what you're looking what you're looking for, what you're aspiring to. What do you Well, it depends on which house you're talking about. <laughs> right. Well, in my house you are. Um, but uh, now, like, what no, do you... No, I guess, no. I mean, uh, to be honest, I when you're young, when I was starting out in stand-up, I really did just feel like 
I can't believe I'm allowed to go on stage and tell jokes because I, I grew up in New York and, you know, going to the clubs in the village as a teenager and watching comedians and, you know, reading reading the books and watching it on TV and, and just being – I can't remember ever being as turned on by something in my life besides sex as stand-up. And so when I started doing it, it was – a thrill that I still feel to this day. Walking onto a stage feels like the greatest, most exciting, daring thing. And and so I never had a goal of being famous. I never used the word career for the first probably five or six years that I did stand-up. I was just slugging it out, fighting for stage time, eventually making a living at it. And then all of a sudden, it becomes this business that you're in, and you've got a manager and an agent and People start asking you about getting a break and and becoming a, a star, and it's like, I don't know what the fuck you people are talking about. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling jokes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so I feel that I feel the same way now. I'm not. I don't get accosted in in movie theaters, and I can walk down the street. But you know, I go out to dinner with my wife, and sometimes, uh, like last week, we went out to dinner, and the guy that owns the restaurant recognized me, and he bought us dessert. That's perfect. Right. That's all I really want. Right, nice. that nice that nice middle where it, the fame isn't a burden, but it's still you know you get some side benefits. People recognize you. You're able to have this career on your own terms. You're able to creatively. It seems like you do whatever you want. And I, I think you know people that are maybe more you know people that are maybe have some more mainstream projects. They kind of probably are jealous of you and your creative independence. I was talking to Bill Burr about this today, and and he was saying that. There's no upside to getting any bigger than we are. That once you go up to that stratosphere, you you lose your personal space. And if a project goes down with your name on it, it's your fault. I've never been at a level where a project failed and it was my fault. Right. I just I've always been part of a team <laughs> that that was able to point at somebody else. Right. <laughs> That's it's a, the greatest, you know. Nice. You just sort of like scamper off into the dust as the building falls, and nobody blames you. So I guess it's like, um, you know, as long as you're, as long as you make enough of a living that your family's comfortable, and as long as I'm making enough money that I don't have to uh, choose to do things I don't want to do. Like to me, money just equals choice, and beyond that, I don't think it serves a purpose. Now you've uh, you you were talking about your writing projects. You've written on uh, the Ellen DeGeneres show. You won four daytime Emmys. You've also written on uh, Louis C.K.'s show, Lucky Louis. I know you've written on uh, some late night shows. What, as far as writing and these team collaborative projects, which of those have been the most fulfilling? Well, Lucky Louis will definitely be the the girl that got away. It's we had one season, and I was working with people that I just respected and we were working on a show that rep it was my life i mean me and louie were living uh, a half a block from each other in venice our kids are the same age our wives were very similar and we came we came up together in boston and this show was about the dirty underbelly of of being parents and it was exactly what my stand-up was about and is about and i felt like man if this thing could go on for 10 years i would be the happiest guy in the world and of course, they, it doesn't work like that very often in Hollywood. You just, you know, sometimes you sometimes you're on a on a, a good show, sometimes you're on a bad show, 
and you you sometimes don't know when you sign up if it'll be good or bad. You know, a lot of times everything looks good on paper, and then you get there, and you're working with people that are just fear fear based, <laughs> and then it trickles down, and then it's really a miserable experience. So, uh, you know, I've been I've been lucky for the most part. I've worked with uh, a lot of people that I respect. I you know I wrote for uh, Cedric the Entertainer and Bill Maher and Chelsea Handler and uh, I mean God the list goes on and on it was all people that you learn a little bit each time and then you get too old and nobody will hire you <laughs> the story show business now you talk yeah. about uh, you your interactions with Howard you're also a, uh, a regular on the Adam Carolla podcast and uh, recently you got a guest host a podcast and during the podcast uh, you almost got in a fight with the co-host. Can you can you take us through that episode? It was a lot like Regis and Kelly Lee. Uh, <laughs> it, it was. It's, what's your last name? Kelly Ripa. Yeah, uh, yeah Kelly it's Ripa. Kathy Lee. Yeah, yeah, Kathy Lee. So Kelly Ripa, well, much yeah, hotter. They they basically said to me, yeah, you've got a, a sidekick slash co-host, uh, <laughs> and he's a little. He's from the dark side. You know, he's lived outside at times. <laughs> and he joined the Navy because of gambling debts. Like, I wasn't given a lot of information. <laughs> right. And coming from the stern world, I just said, all right, he's he's a whack packer, and he's one of these guys that <clears throat> wants to talk about his craziness. So, and I was at uh, I was at Jimmy Kimmel's house watching football with a bunch of guys, and this guy, Brad, and he's telling me all these crazy stories. So I drive him over to the uh, show. We're doing it live from – not live, but we're recording it at a sports bar on Happy a Sunday. Ending. And he's telling me these more stories as I drive him over there. So we get on the air, and I, and I start bringing up the same stories. And all of a sudden, the guy's got sweat on his brow, and his fists are clenched. And I'm like, uh-oh, I've seen this before. Yeah, it was, it was so hilarious listening to because you're like, you introed him and your intro, you didn't – I don't know if he has credits or what his relationship to the Kimmel show is or whatever, but it, your your credits kind of for him were, oh, he's had a lot of problems with drugs and alcohol. <laughs> he, he probably blew some guy for pot. And clearly, like right after when you get into it, the, the guy had no idea that was coming or that would be talked about. Now, Yeah, I think it, it, was a, uh, it was a perfect storm of him <laughs> not knowing my style. And me not knowing that he was dangerous. Oh, right. And so it could have gotten ugly, but luckily I've had so many hecklers over the years in clubs where it really has gotten almost dangerous. I got beat up once on stage. Really? And that I knew I knew how to handle it. I know and I know from watching nature shows. You you know, you, you, you make eye contact but you but you bow your head, you don't turn your back and you and you just immediately um Valid. I just validated him. You know, I just said, "Hey, Brad, you're you know you're a good guy. I like <laughs> yeah. I like your stories." And I and I was being sincere, but I had to put aside the you know rude douchebag Greg Fitzsimmons persona that I usually have in an right. interview. Yeah, but that was the rude douchebag stuff was really funny, and his reaction was great too. Now you, t- you talk about hecklers. I was actually at the Gibson Amphitheater. I went to see Artie Lang there, and you were one of the guys that Artie had on to open up. And I remember being in the crowd, and some of the uh, some of the mongrels that go to these Howard Stern events are really, really. Uh, I don't I don't want to say subhuman, but they're really kind of out there, and they're guys getting really drunk, really rowdy. I think there was a guy with like a giant um, plastic guitar 
that he was drinking like a 64-ounce beer out of and was just slugging it. And then I don't know what he did to you. He, he might have thrown something, and he was yelling. And then you you had the microphone, and you're like, come here, come here, come here. And the guy like walks up to the stage, and then just out of nowhere, you just go, wham! You just bop him right on the head. And, oh, man, that was, that was <laughs> one of the best moments I've ever seen in stand-up comedy. Yeah, he was throwing gang signals at me. <laughs> And, you know, I don't I'm not from Los Angeles and I uh, I don't believe that most of the people that dress that way and throw gang signals are really from gangs. And I also believe that Artie is not a big draw from the Crips. Yeah. No. And, And so the guy was the guy was yelling stuff out. And so I gave him an opportunity to engage with me in a constructive manner. And he. Instead, chose to do this gang signal thing. So I, uh, I tried to deconstruct who he was in front of three thousand people, and he didn't like that. <laughs> no. And so yeah. So I just kept saying, "No, oh, I can't hear you. Come closer. I can't hear you. Come closer." And then yeah, I just bashed him in the head with the microphone <laughs> and told the bouncers to throw him out. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Great moment. Nice. So uh, Greg, when's the book coming out? November 9th, and I, I'm. Uh, urging people to get online now because you can get it on pre-sale a lot cheaper yeah very and cheap it's, on... uh, it, and the book is really something that i i had no idea how it would turn out and i gotta tell you honestly like i didn't think i'd ever sign off on it and when i did it's like i'm really proud of this thing and i feel like you know if people if people uh Pick it up and read it. I think that they'll they'll be glad they did. So go to go to fitzdog.com. You can pre-order it there on Amazon and tell your friends because it, it is time. It's time to get this thing off the shelves. Let's and move units. Home. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, yeah let's I'm, move units. <laughs> I'm going to put a link to my website, and I really appreciate the time, Greg. Uh, make sure you check out Greg's radio show besides his uh, very interesting book, and you can follow him at Twitter at uh, Greg Fitz Show. Uh, thanks a lot, Greg. Appreciate your time, man. Did he hang up on you already? I, I think thanks, that's... Greg. <laughs> <clears throat> He's All like, right. and good night. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, I felt like that one well. It did. Those were some uh, solid questions, buddy. Oh, thanks. That was yeah, a good I, interview. I was trying to work you guys in. It's it's no, tough. No, though. no, no, no. I, I I'm just listening anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's tough on the on the <clears throat> phone too because you know I'm waiting for him to kind of stop so I can get my question in and then it's like oh if you no, got yeah, something. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I know. I get it. But uh, yeah, make sure you guys if you're if you're hearing this now, uh, if you're not listening to it live, you can go to SeanTGreen.com. There'll be uh, with the episode recap. There'll be a picture of Greg's book. You can just click that. You'll get a link up to the Amazon pre-sale. And I think it's only like 16 bucks if you order it now. So make sure you check that out. I'm sure it's a good read. You know, that's what I like about comedy. I like personal, honest, raw comedy. That's yeah, that's my favorite right. kind as well. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, Richard Pryor. If he if he would have just it just seems so obvious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think fake comedy is better, but well, that's you, I, Logan. That fits you guys. <laughs> Logan's, Logan's always like props, like a lot of props. <laughs> Logan's props always is, trying to get some fake comedy. Props. How do I like my comedy? Full of props. That's well, how. If you listen to the radio show, you know I always bring props. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I gotta go we get keep, my we props. Keep explain, <laughs> we keep explaining to Logan it's audio program, and he shouldn't bring all these what visual props. Guys, props he's still got like a clown it. afro wig and a big foam finger on. He's like, ah, dude, props. <laughs> well, I gotta speaking of real, I gotta keep it real, guys, because uh, I know a couple weeks ago. I was making fun of Christine O'Donnell. I said, Christine O'Donnell, she talked about being a witch. She must be a witch. And 
we were really giving her a hard time. But <laughs> now, now it's come out that I was dead wrong. She's she's uh, not a witch. I'm not a witch. <laughs> I'm nothing you've heard. Oh wow. I'm you. All right. Well, that, you're you're that, me. That bears that bears rear. I'm not a witch. Okay. What a what a bold campaign statement. Oh, Read cool. my lips. I am not a witch. I just think that's funny. That's like, you ever, hey man, it's did you take, did you that, you take that's... that ten bucks? I'm not a cokehead. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, dude. Yeah, that's admitting that it's plausible. Yeah, like... I'm not a witch. <laughs> How about there is no such thing as witches, <laughs> yeah. you fucking weirdos. Uh, just to clarify, I'm not a witch. I'm not a wizard. A leprechaun. I'm not a, I'm not a troll. I don't live under a bridge. <laughs> I am not a fairy. I'm nothing you've heard. I am a wood nymph. I'm you. You're me. None of us are perfect. <laughs> no. Can we can we stop using that in general? I, I just hate everyone who uses that excuse. Nobody's, Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm just human. Thanks. <laughs> right, you are just human, but when you make mistakes, people criticize You're you. You're a human dick. Yes. <laughs> and we're judging humans. When when other humans mess up, we judge you. That's a part of the process. Perfect. But none of us can be happy with what we see all around us. Witches. Politicians who think spending, trading favors, and, and backroom deals are the ways to stay in office. And burning witches. <laughs> I'll go to Washington and do what you'd do. <laughs> I don't want to vote for me. You're going to get There's drunk a and pass out at the Lincoln Memorial? That's fucking crazy. Yeah, we wouldn't vote for representatives if I could... <laughs> right. Do what I yeah, do what I do. You're gonna no, pork you to dexatrin you... and, <laughs> and read yeah. six dollar books. <laughs> if I wanted someone to smoke a hookah and play fantasy football, yeah. I would vote for myself. And I would still not leave my couch. <laughs> I am you. What a weird angle to play. She must I'm have a Christine huge O'Donnell, dick. And I approve this message. <laughs> Christ- I'm you. Christine O'Donnell has a serious back hair problem. <laughs> yeah, I am you. Really? You only have one testicle? That's bizarre. So, John, yeah, that's right. You only have one testicle. You you beat testicular cancer. I beat it. I beat it down. How was that? How was oh, that it was experience? really fun. Um, cancer's really fun. No, it was annoying. Uh, it happened when I was 19. So it was uh, extra freaky because you're too young to understand like hey, yeah you I can't, can't really through this <laughs> but it's really it's a really common form of cancer and like 99 percent curable so but sure. they I, we got we caught it late so they had to take one of the balls out and then i had to do chemo and you're you're all good you've been in remission yeah. for a long time yeah 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 oh yeah clean bill of health baby but awesome. every time every time anything goes wrong in my body i go to the doctor i'm like i have cancer <laughs> yeah. like i had this thing weird thing when i was swallowing with my doctor she's like okay what's wrong i go i have throat cancer and she's like Okay, no you don't. I'm like, yes I do. I have throat cancer. Uh, well, it's, I don't. it's good that you're you're healthy and you're alive. Unfortunately, I enjoy it. Well, all right. Well, that's good. <laughs> Some, sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I see John Huck and I'm like, does he enjoy being alive? Is he happy right now? But uh, it seems it seems like you're in a good place, John. I'm yeah. glad to hear that because uh, if you've been following the news, some people not not as lucky. Unfortunately, we uh. I think you heard that story of there was a gay guy and his roommate, uh, I guess, videotaped him being gay and thought like, oh, it'd be funny if I set up this webcam and then, you know, the guy's gay. And then, of course, the guy was humiliated and ended up taking his own life, which is uh, a real tragedy and, uh, you know, a serious bummer. I mean, you know, hey, you should be able to live, live your own life. You don't need to kill yourself, obviously. But I, I think it is kind of weird now that when celebrities come out and, oh, now this is like the issue of 
we're going to stop bullying. This, I just feel like it's a, a certain kind of narcissist to come out and say, oh, okay, I'm Dane Cook, I'm going to stop bullying. Dane Cook, all these people put out these messages. You're not going to stop bullying. It's a shame that this guy killed himself, but... You're not going to stop bullying, but I will say that at least they're doing something with their celebrity stat, their celebrityness. What the hell's the word I'm looking for? Well, celebrity. But, but I mean, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of like younger kids that love Dane Cook. You know what I mean? They like, That's true. they like, he sells out places like the fucking Boston Garden or whatever. You know, it's insane. So you got 15 year old kids. <laughs> they're, one, they're you know, their minds are soft, but if someone like him that they look up to or that they love and they fucking listen to his records and shit, if they if if he's saying don't do it, there's a possibility one of them, two of them was like, ah, oh, yeah, That is yeah, true. You know. Yeah, I guess I underestimate that he has a young audience. As far as Ellen's audience, I don't think my mom is bullying anybody at this point. So right, it just does worried. seem weird, Ellen coming out. I, I feel like you're just kind of preaching to the converted. Obviously, if I'm going to videotape my gay roommate and <laughs> you're humiliate an him, I'm not also watching Ellen. Like that, those, <laughs> or if you are, you're fucking spitting on it. That's not the same. Yeah, I'm already an asshole. You're not going to stop me. I'm an out-of-control asshole. No, but there's always those kids that are like on the fence like, oh, if Bobby's punching this guy, maybe I should punch him too. <laughs> hey, you want to see this video I got on my roommate after Ellen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, I'm watching Ellen. I want to watch your gay sex roommate tape later. Wait, we got to humiliate this gay guy. Sure, right after well, Ellen, Ellen's dude. on right now, but we can do it right now. She's dancing, man. Come on, relax. <laughs> Quiet, I don't like anyone to move while she dances. All right. Well, John, thank you very much for uh, being on the program. Hey, it was great. Thanks for having me on. Plug man. your CD, plug your film. Oh, yeah, I got a, a CD coming out on iTunes later on this month called Fantasticular Hilaritation. Uh, I do uh, touch on the subject of cancer and my balls <laughs> and whatnot and my hair. And... Um, also, I got a movie called Garbage coming out on DVD, hopefully sometime November or December. And I got two shows this Saturday, one the Comedy Store Belly Room 1030 and one Lovett's Club at midnight because Sweet. I am kicking ass. <laughs> and what's your Twitter? John oh, John, it's, Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at John, J-O-N underscore Huck, H-U-C-K. All right, Logan, you want to wrap things up with a haiku? Let's do it. Late show titty hug. Watch Ellen, then gay sex tapes. <laughs> John Huck has one ball. Very poetic. That was beautiful. <laughs> well played, Thanks. Logan. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the green room. We do it live every Thursday, 8 o'clock on LA Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to The Green Room. Don't forget to check out SeanTGreen.com and click the iTunes link to subscribe today. Also, be sure to check out DocumentaryLabel.com to see what I'm up to.